Welcome to our Perimenopause What the F podcast, brought to you by the Perry community. In this podcast, your host, Rachel Hughes, talks everything, and we mean everything, perimenopause. She helps us navigate through all our What the F perimenopause moments and all, is this normal? Questions. Rachel talks with perimenopause experts, thought leaders, and inspirational voices of the community. To connect with other perimenopause warriors, download our free Perry app. You can find the link in our show notes. And now, let's dive right in. Hey everyone, this is Rachel Hughes of The Mental Memos here with another episode of Perry Talks, where we like to deep dive into all things perimenopause and menopause, bringing you the science and the sisterhood. Oh boy, sleep. Are you getting any? I am not getting any. That's why I'm especially excited to be speaking with sleep specialist, Dr. Shelby Harris, on why a good night's sleep eludes so many of us in perimenopause. What is the deal? We need help, and I know Dr. Harris has the answers. For future episodes, make sure you subscribe to this podcast. And now, let's get started. How are you, Dr. Shelby? Good to meet you. Same here. So Thanks so much for joining us. This is just a pleasure and... uh, an important topic to most of us, many of us. Uh, so I appreciate your your time today. I'm happy to be here. Good. Um, if I might, just let everyone know who you are. Um, need my glasses for that. You're in White Plains, by the way. I am. My office is, but you can just say New York City because okay. it's like <laughs> 99% of what I'm doing right now is virtual and. Yeah. It might stay that way for a long time. So New York City. I home. know. I'm actually, I'm just outside the city in um, Stanford. Oh, yeah. And I'm from the city and I know White Plains. I know the area really well. And I, I'm i up in my apartment today because so many people are now back home working mm-hmm. and the common areas in the building are packed again. So mm-hmm. I know it's such a pain. Anyway. All right. Um, welcome, everyone. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Shelby Harris. Um, She is in private practice in New York, where she specializes in the use of cognitive behavior therapy, that's CBT, if I mention it during the course of our call, um, for anxiety and depression. Dr. Shelby is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine, BSM, by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep disorders, including insomnia, nightmares, circadian rhythm disorders. I'm very interested in that. I didn't know that was an actual <laughs> clinical term. Narcolepsy, apnea treatment, non-compliant, um, using evidence-based non-pharmacological treatments. Before going into private practice, Dr. Shelby was the director of the Behavioral Sleep Medicine Program at the Sleep Wake Disorders Center at Montefiore Medical Center. And she's also the author of the Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, Get a Good Night's Sleep Without Relying on Medication. So thank you again, Dr. Shelby, for joining us here. Um, May I begin by asking um, what happens when we sleep? Why is it so important that we get a good night's sleep? 
So I think the interesting thing about sleep is that it impacts so many areas of our life, right? So if you, it, it's when, what we find is that when you don't sleep, these are when the things actually happen, right? So when you're not sleeping well, what do we find? We, I always think from head down. So our brains cognitively are just off. So memory, attention, focus. We also notice that there's a lot of issues for people with um, just your emotion regulation. So you tend to be a lot more like tense or you tend to be irritable a lot more or quick to react. Then we also find that working our way down, there's more issues with cardiovascular health, stroke risk, um, heart health, we also find balance, exercise um, might be off when you're trying to, mm. when you're sleep deprived. It impacts so many areas from um, from mm. our ability to metabolize food. We can have higher rates of diabetes to so many things that like sleep is the thing we need to think about. Memory, uh, just your body's health in general. I had no idea that it had such impact on our ability to metabolize food yeah yeah when people we have a we call it a metabolic syndrome so when people aren't doing as well what can happen is they um they find that they sometimes look almost like they're diabetic and sometimes it can lead to diabetes so yes. when people are sleep deprived we also find like that's incredible we also find that some people like when they're sleep deprived what do they do they tend to reach for higher fat higher, you know, sugar foods too, that also can then lead to weight gain. Kind of get a boost. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, Dr. Shelby, what are the unique biological alterations of sleep throughout a woman's life? So when it comes to women, what we find, which is interesting, I find is that with women and men, when they're boys and girls, the, the sleep rates of insomnia are actually equal until we hit adolescence. Then once adolescence hits, that's when women, girls, younger girls, adolescents tend to have higher rates of insomnia and sleep problems. That's because of hormone changes. So what we find is across the lifespan, there's a few things that factor in. So one is hormonal. The other one can be stress or um, psychological. So stress, anxiety, depression, we do have tend to have higher rates of that. And then the other thing is more so, um, societal. So there can be more stresses at work, family demands, all that sort of stuff. But with the hormonal thing, that changes over time. So what we find is when you're hitting puberty, we tend to have some women more than others. Every month, about a week before they get their period, they start to have either excessive sleepiness or they have insomnia, it can swing either way. And that tends to happen every month for some women. And then the next thing that tends to happen is pregnancy for a lot of women. So during pregnancy, there are different changes in sleep even during pregnancy from the psychological stressors, but also physical stressors, right? So you have to urinate a lot more, you're uncomfortable, um, and it gets, it changes. Also vivid dreams can happen. I know I had that when I was pregnant. All that stuff can happen. And so that changes during the pregnancy. Then once you have the baby, guess what? Now you're some, some women are breastfeeding, you're having hormone changes left and right. You're getting used to having a baby that's up a lot at the beginning. So that's another stressor. And then it kind of quiets down a little bit. You might still have the monthly cycles that kind of um, create some insomnia. But then what we find is perimenopause is the big area where a lot of women in the range, it can last for a long time. So you're having major shifts in estrogen, drops in estrogen, progesterone, and that can really lead to sleep problems too over time. So what we find is that sometimes sleep is one of the early 
indicators that perimenopause is starting to happen because you start having waking up with hot flashes or yeah. waking up with that racing brain, all that stuff can happen. So that can last for some women a few years, some women it can last five to 10 years. Yeah. And then once you're menopause and you stop getting your period altogether for at least a year, it can even out for some women, but for others, it can still, you can still maintain having some sleep problems here and there. What, what is adequate, appropriate sleep? So you just made me think also, so initially my question was to focus on some people who just seem to be okay on fewer hours of sleep. And I'm, I'm speaking uh, of appropriate in quotes in terms of eight hour sleep. But then I'm also, you just got me thinking about older adults. So very deep into postmenopause, yeah. you'll yeah. find people, I know certainly women, men, who are speaking about just needing less sleep. It's, and mm -hmm. I don't know that maybe they're thinking of it in that way, or if they're just, their bodies become used to less sleep. When we talk about sleep need, it does change, but only a tiny tiny bit over time okay so people, people often will say oh i need a lot less sleep the older i get it no that's actually not true so okay. how do you know what your sleep need is though when you're a younger adult middle age whatever what that is is you're looking for how how much sleep you need on a routine regular basis most nights a week where you feel well rested and refreshed to go about your day and mm -hmm. if you try to get a lot more, it's difficult to get a lot more. So people mm -hmm. are like, I'm fine on four hours of sleep every night, but then they like can doze and take a nap really easily or they pass out like that. And when, once they get into bed or yeah. if they're given the opportunity to sleep for eight or nine hours, they easily sleep longer. They probably need more sleep. They're just mm -hmm. fooling themselves. Mm -hmm. So it's really what that need is. And it really ranges for people. So it's anywhere for about 70% of the population. It's between six and nine hours a night. So they, uh, that eight you were referring to, that's just yeah. because basically in the middle. That's it. Okay. So it's, it's just cleaner and easier to say eight. So yeah. it's really a range and it varies from person to person, but most people are six to nine. There are some outliers who do better with less sleep and they don't feel like they need more. And there are some people who need a lot more than that. Now, as you get older, it does tend to, there are changes in sleep. So what we say is sleep architecture. It's like kind of your stages of sleep throughout the night. So your sleep tends to get more disrupted, hmm. oftentimes because of having to use the bathroom a lot. Yes, yes. Pain. So yeah. those are two of the biggest factors when it, when you get older. Your sleep is just lighter. It's not that kind of like deep, deep sleep that a lot of people would love to have. Okay. And then the other thing that changes is that when you get older, you tend to older adults tend to nap a little bit more, and that's okay as long as they're not having a lot of insomnia at night. So when we look at it in a twenty-four hour period. If you're napping a little bit during the day, it's actually not drastically less sleep. It's just broken up a little bit more. That's it. Okay. I want to ask you about napping a little bit later. This is so interesting to me. I feel like, um, you know, when you mentioned uh, sort of looking or establishing the possibility of a woman entering into perimenopause by looking at her sleep, I actually mm -hmm. never heard that. Um, and so I... I am hearing it coming from the back end, which is myself and so many women saying, I just suddenly I can't sleep. I'm not getting as, as much rest and so on. But it's funny because as I was preparing to speak with you, 
I was thinking about having children who hit puberty and it couldn't get enough sleep. And, you know, parents of, of teenagers will talk about that a lot, right? Their kids, just, and, and, you know, for some, their clock is just maybe different. They're getting to bed really late or whatever it is. But it struck me that hormones, you know, when we're talking about puberty, we're talking about hormones. And so why wouldn't this be different? Right. But I do feel like there are so many women who may walk into their doctor's office and complain about sleep and perhaps not be asked about um, sort of vet out whether or not they're in perimenopause or not. And I see the hormonal thing with adolescents is a whole other discussion we could spend hours sure, on. Sure. But a lot of that is they normally go to bed later and want to sleep later, which is yeah. natural for them. Yes. They normally average amount of sleep for an adolescent is about nine and a half hours, nine and a quarter hours. I, I am, I, good luck finding an adolescent that's doing that because they have early school start times. So yeah. they sleep a lot longer on the weekends because they're yeah. catching for the week. That's the, that's the main issue. Okay. A little bit more. And then once you get into adulthood, it starts to drop down to that eight range that I was talking mm -hmm. about. Now, when it comes to the perimenopause aspect, what I see, I mean, I think a lot of people just don't, and I, like, groups like Perry, like apps like this, they're fantastic because it's getting people to think about perimenopause, which so many people don't think about it. Their physicians don't often think about it. And I, I get women all the time who are in their early forties, sometimes even late thirties coming yep. into my office and like, I'm not anxious, nothing else is going on. My sleep just all of a sudden is off. And then we start to look and then we start to see, okay, maybe there are some other things that are lining up and they're in early perimenopause and they had no idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's quite something. And, and as I'm listening to you just talk about what can happen, you mm -hmm. know, sort of the, the spillover into all aspects of life, it's actually really, um, it, it's, it's critically important. Can HRT be helpful? Yeah, for sure. It definitely is. You know, there's not a one size fits all approach for anyone. And Sometimes we do, like we'll talk about at some point, like CBT for insomnia, which is really a great thing to start with because then you're not using any medications, but sometimes right. that's enough for some women. And it's really, it's just a risk benefit kind of thing to think about. And it's very well tolerated for many people. I think the old ideas of it being, you know, like always causing cancer, all that sort of stuff are really have been debunked a lot. And mm -hmm. for some women there, I mean, it just really makes a huge difference. So yeah. it should definitely be conversation to have with your physician and if your gynecologist is like not even willing to have the talk with you find someone who will at least have a discussion with you okay um before we get into sort of the specifics around insomnia i just want to talk a bit about fatigue and what can be done you know, that's a word we use a lot i certainly hear it a lot i i say it a lot i'm i'm fatigued and i will say that and i know we're going to talk about this stress and anxiety and those things that can creep up for any number of reasons and suddenly a woman finds herself using words like i am fatigued which sounds so much more drastic maybe than tired what can we do so fatigue is a very multifaceted kind of thing and i think it, a lot of people also get it very mixed up with sleepiness okay. so Sleepiness is this irrepressible need for sleep. So you fall asleep really fast. You can nap mm. easily. 
that sort of stuff. And a lot of people who have insomnia get in bed thinking they are sleepy, but they're not. They're tired. They're fatigued. That's a different feeling. So okay. we're fatigued, but not sleepy. You're not going to fall asleep. You're just tired. You have no energy. That's a different thing than actually being sleepy. So it's teaching. I teach patients a lot of times to listen to what the sleepiness cues of yawning, heaviness in your eyes, that kind of feeling. That's the sign to get into bed. Now, when it comes to either issue, fatigue or sleepiness, if you're having a lot of fatigue and sleepiness, there's a bunch of things that can cause it, right? So making sure you're getting adequate sleep on a regular basis is key. That can definitely be um, an influencing factor. Also making sure the quality of the sleep you're getting is really important. So once women tend to hit perimenopause, there are higher rates of something called sleep apnea. So there's more snoring, more choking and gasping that can happen, pauses in your breathing. That leads to sleepiness a lot of times, but it can also lead to that feeling of just being tired. Um, then perimenopause is another big thing that can cause fatigue in a lot of people. So it's a very, and, and stress, like you were alluding to earlier, yeah. stress, depression. There's like a billion things. But from my standpoint, I always try to make sure you're getting enough adequate sleep, whatever that number is for you on a regular basis. And it's not just quantity, it's quality. So limiting yeah. alcohol, limiting the caffeine, limiting all that sort of stuff on that top of it too. Why, why is sleep apnea? on the up in perimenopause. Is that again hormones? Um, yeah, it's somewhat hormones. So what happens is it's much more men when they're younger, um, but it's not always like people are always like, well, I'm thin, I'm healthy, I exercise, I'm fine. I don't yeah. It's what happens is in a lot of women is that as you get older, what sleep apnea is, is this is your airway. It's not pretty. Mm -hmm. This is your airway, then you're like, let's say you're on your back now. So when you go to sleep, everything starts to loosen a little bit. And when someone has sleep apnea, it loosens a lot. So you hear, it's not pretty. Yeah. That's the noise. <laughs> In women, it tends to not be a lot of the times as pronounced as we think of it for men. So it gets misdiagnosed as depression and other things. What? Really? Yeah, they're going and saying, I'm tired, but I don't think I snore really loud. No one says I snore really loud. But if this is happening and a little pause in breathing or anything like that, it's gonna make you feel fatigued and sleepy. Now, why does that happen as you get older? It happens because as you get into perimenopause and menopause, the hormones are essentially, the change in hormones and aging causes your airway to relax. And your muscles, I hate to say it, they just aren't as strong in your airway as when you were younger. And when they're looser, this happens more. And then what happens for some women too, is there's some more weight gain, a little bit more belly weight, um, belly fat can lead to more risk of sleep apnea, that sort of stuff. This is fascinating. I had yeah. no idea. Thank you. This is incredible. Um, okay, let's talk about insomnia specifically. Chronic okay. versus acute insomnia. Can you break those down for us? So acute insomnia. So a lot of people will say, oh, I have horrible insomnia. I've had a horrible insomnia for a week or two. The thing to notice, it's not fun, right? But it's not, it doesn't mean that you have a long-term insomnia. So it's, I can't, I don't diagnose insomnia for anyone unless it's going on for at least one month, but ideally three months. That's when it's chronic. So okay. insomnia in general, when it's actually a diagnosable issue, is trouble falling asleep, staying asleep, or awakening too early and having it happen for at least three nights a week. And when oh. that on for about a month, that's where it's short-term. So we take into account that we're human beings. We have life stressors. The, the world is all over the place in the moment, especially that yeah. it's not to have a bad week or two of sleep here and there. That's not yeah. something you necessarily like give your best an X over it. When it starts to go on for multiple months, three months or more, that's when it becomes more of a chronic issue. 
But I always want people to address it, especially a month in if it keeps going on. But if it's like a week or two, try to do some of the simple sleep hygiene things that we can talk about. If it's really not resolving after a month or two, that's when you want to talk to your doctor. Yeah, this is so helpful. Thank you. Because I, I do, I, I say this a lot, um, you know, that we, we hear these terms so often. Insomnia is certainly one we've heard yeah. for many of us years and years and years. And, and so it sort of becomes easy. It's like low hanging fruit, but to really understand what we may be struggling with, I, I just really appreciate the, the definition. It's so helpful. Um, I also try to emphasize to most people is I think that the, the, the culture of the way we talk about sleep has kind of swung big time in the past few years towards like wellness and promoting sleep. And there have been books out there. I mean, I wrote a book about insomnia, but there are books out there about why sleep is the most important thing. You should be getting perfect night of sleep every night. And I think that also makes people who have a bad night here and there then think that it's really bad and that they're going to have all these horrible things. Yes. It's, it's like, it's, it, there's a, there's a middle ground. And I always say to people like, you're a good sleeper. If you're content with your sleep five nights a week, that takes okay. it. I, I spend my whole life. So appreciate that you said that. It, it's so important. Everything is kind of like spun out, and, and you are you're right. We're in this culture of sort of addressing everything, which is so critical. But right. we can derail ourselves and certainly start diagnosing ourselves a lot. Exactly. I'm a sleep specialist. I spend all my time at work talking about insomnia and talk about it all the time. But I don't sleep perfect every night. I am mm. with my sleep five nights a week. And if I start to notice that go up, then I start to, okay, what can I do to treat it? But that's where you have to be awesome. that middle ground a little bit. Excellent. Thank you so much, Dr. Shelby. Um, what else besides hormonal fluctuations? And I, and I ask this and I, I hope our audience forgives. It seems like such a, an obvious question, but you're bringing up so many things that, um, sort of debunk the obvious, what else can impact our sleep? besides hormones. Right, so it, I, I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier and it's like hormones is the big one, but then it's also psychological and biological. I think of like three intersecting circles, like a Venn diagram with three circles. And the, the psychological stuff is there's a lot of stress, there's a lot of more anxiety, a lot more depression. Those are things that can definitely impact it. And then when we think about social and factors that can influence it, a lot of times women nowadays are working and family life and they have like multiple, multiple roles and they're just torn in every direction. And when you start to hit that perimenopause phase two to menopause, you're not just often taking care of your own kids, you're taking yes. care of the elders. So it's like every little direction you're torn in. So those are all the things too. There's a lot of factors, unfortunately. Yeah, that, that, thank you. That's excellent for, for pointing out. The biological piece, yeah. can you just hone well, in on that? That's hormonal. That's the hormonal part. Okay, thank you. Yeah. Um, is insomnia treated differently um, when it's related to menopause and perimenopause or no? Yes and no. So when we think about insomnia from a sleep medicine standpoint, it's a little different based on who you talk to, psychiatry or whatever. But when we think about it from a sleep medicine standpoint, we always try to start by treating it all the time with most of the time, I should say, with CBT for insomnia, unless there's like obvious other factors that are playing, like you have really bad apnea that's waking you up. We do, yeah. but we always try to do the CBT for insomnia because it's effective for many people. 
doesn't use medication. It doesn't work immediately, but it works pretty darn fast, sometimes a month, two months. And we try to start there across the board. But if that's not enough for everyone, in which it, it not always is, then we start to think about other things. So what could it be medication? Could it be hormone replacement? Could it be who knows what that might be? That's when we start to tailor it a little bit more. Okay. Um, okay. I, I feel like the, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I guess it really depends on sort of where you land, but it sounds like the best place to start if you're suffering with insomnia or other sleep disturbances is in therapy. Not really, like in psychotherapy? Not, yeah. I, I would say no. Okay. Say because the reality is that most therapists, I hate mm. to say, don't have much training in sleep. So, mm. so I'll tell you the same sleep hygiene stuff over and over again. If you have someone who is really well-versed in sleep, wonderful. Mm. But you okay. want someone like myself, who's got behavioral sleep medicine specialty, because yes. then we're psychologists most of the time, psychologists and sleep specialists. So we worked with sleep labs, sleep centers. But what we find a lot of times, you know, if someone has anxiety or depression and they're not sleeping or some other medical issue, whatever it is, that's not usually what's maintaining the insomnia for a lot of people. It tends to be all the things that we're doing to make up for the bad night. So it can be going to bed early, napping, worrying about your sleep, all that sort of stuff. That's where we actually focus the treatment on is all the stuff that you're doing that's maintaining the sleep, not necessarily what always causes it. So that's why doing like CBT for insomnia, which is therapy, but it's there are a lot of people who don't like most therapists aren't trained in it. So you want to find someone who can do that. That's a great place to start. You can also go to a sleep center, talk to a sleep specialist, a sleep doctor, and you want someone who's very well versed in all different types of treatments for insomnia, not just like apnea, because a lot of centers really do a lot of apnea stuff. So you want to find. Yes. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. That's so helpful. Um, do you have any tips for staying alert and effective when you are suffering um, from sleep deprivation? And now that I just said that, is sleep deprivation a fair term to use? Yeah. I mean, it's, it, there's short-term sleep deprivation and long-term, right? So it's right. like, oh, I had a bad night or I was up really night because I went out to whatever it was I was doing um, or I had a kid that kept me up all night. Like that's sleep deprivation. And then there's the long-term or chronic one, which is, okay, you're, you used to always get eight hours a night and now you're only getting five because of insomnia. That's a longer-term chronic sleep loss. So what you can do, first of all, is try to identify the factors that are getting in the way right? So if you have insomnia, if you have apnea, if you have a work on treating that, that's the first thing that you should do. But it, you know, like I said, even as a sleep specialist myself, I have a bad night here and there, or I once in a while oh, choose to stay up late to do whatever. Right. <laughs> right? right. So I'm human. So what I do is, and the first thing I always do, there are two things that I always do. I am a huge fan of light, bright light in the morning, light is very alerting. We don't think about it. You are, you're in a well-lit area behind you, I can see. So yeah. it, it, light is super, um, super good at giving you energy. It's just as effective as a cup of coffee if you have like 20 minutes of light in the afternoon. So really try and get light. I will have, I, I love myself a cup of coffee in the morning. Sometimes I'll give myself two if I had a really rough night. That's okay. Mm -hmm. and the other big things that I do are I move. So I get out of bed and I don't have to, like, I, I'm a runner, but I don't always go for a really hardcore run. I'll just walk. And sometimes even if it's cold out, I'll go for a walk outside because the light exposure and the movement's really important. 
And then the final thing, you can do like a nap here and there if you need to, but if you have insomnia, be careful. And we'll talk about naps in a sec. So you can be careful, but if it's like one night here and there, a 20 minute nap earlier in the day is fine, like before around 2 p.m. or so. And then the final thing is drink lots of water. So when I get up, I get light and I get sometimes coffee, but I first start with um, a big glass of cold water because yes. deprivation is very dehydrating. So that was actually one of my questions. I thought I had heard in my years that hydration and sleep was connected. And so you are answering that. So if you are losing sleep, you are also losing hydration. Yes, yeah, so and make sure you have a good, good amount of water throughout the day, for sure. Excellent, thank you and for that. With that is that a lot of people tend to not drink enough during the day. And then yeah. there's so much at night because I have to drink, I, I'm like so thirsty. I was like, well, do you drink during the day or do you backlog it closer to the night? Because that's when you realize you're thirsty and then you're right. having way so really try to have it throughout the day is key. Oh, I love that. Thank you. Um, okay. I want to get a bit deeper into now sleep and anxiety because anxiety is such a, yeah. a um, you know, an experience for perimenopausal and menopausal women. Um, I understand, of course, the hormonal sort of aspect, but can you talk a bit about what happens, as you mentioned earlier in the call, around the increase of anxiety and also the disruptive moods that might come, because that's also something that we talk about a lot in midlife, you know, feeling rageful, feeling depressed, feeling tearful, all of these things that happen. And we immediately speak about hormones, but perhaps we can sort of help some things improve yeah. ourselves. So if we can work on getting you to sleep better. Sleep is not the cure for everything, despite what people say. It's super important. I think it's one of those pillars. It's a bedrock. And when you're not sleeping well, especially when you're not getting REM sleep, which is that I always call REM sleep. Like you don't want to have all REM sleep. You want to have about 20% of the night or so of REM. But when you have REM, your brain is literally processing. It's like the filing cabinet. So it's emotion processing, memory processing, all that's happening. That's when we tend to dream the most. You can dream in other stages, but you want to get that kind of REM sleep because it really does help your brain to even out a little bit more. So when you, if you've gotten enough sleep, you find that people find that they're, they're able to manage it's, you know, it doesn't mean that you're never going to have anxiety, but it might mean that the things that set you off might, that that threshold might be a little bit, a little bit um, more difficult to attain. So you're, you're a little bit more even keeled in general. You don't get set off on stuff. And we do find that um, sometimes with people who have bipolar disorder, who have depression, um, even with anxiety, sometimes one of the first symptoms before we actually see like a manic episode happen or a significant, mm, yes. their sleep goes off first. So sleep is the thing that can then worsen all the other stuff. And what we also find too, is if you're in therapy for anxiety, depression, whatever it might be, if you're not sleeping well, it actually makes it harder to achieve those goals in therapy. If you're sleeping better, if we work on sleep at the beginning or concurrently with your other treatment, it actually improves your outcomes for therapy. Fascinating. Okay. This is so interesting. And when you speak about REM sleep, can you just briefly just with so, that. Yeah. So we have different stages throughout the night and we cycle through each stage about five-ish to seven times a night, depending on how much you sleep you, uh, you get. And when you go to sleep, you're awake, then you have REM quick, but you really go mostly, you cycle through four or three stages and you get to deep sleep. So the stages are REM, which is that rapid eye movement. 
And that's when your brain is super active. Your body's actually turned off, but your brain's active. You're dreaming, you're processing, thinking about do, what memories do I need to keep and what do I shred, essentially. It's right. the then you go into, you have like that stage. There's also like this right where you fall asleep. There's stage one, which is in between that kind of like, am I asleep? Am I not? I don't know. That very mm -hmm. quick. Then you have stage two, which is kind of the middle ground where you spend a lot of your, your night, about 65%. And then stage, um, there's 60%. And then stage three is that deep, deep sleep. That's what people are like, I always want the deep, deep sleep. It's like, actually, you want a little bit of it and you want RAM and you want a mix of everything. You don't want just one thing. And during that deeper stage of sleep, stage three, that's when your body repairs itself. So your muscles grow, your blood vessels repair themselves, your heart gets stronger, your brain neurons form, all that sort of stuff. So throughout the night, you cycle through all those stages five to seven times. Wow, fascinating. Uh, this is incredible. <laughs> so I'm getting very excited. Yes. Um, okay, tips for anxious sleepers. So by this, I was thinking about people who are become anxious, nervous mm -hmm. prior to going to sleep because they're worried about not getting a good night's sleep. Are yeah. there any tips? For those people it's easier that said than done i know but i always yeah. the minute you start worrying about whether you're going to sleep or predicting what's going to happen that's the kiss of death yeah. so control sleep is going to lack lead to a lack of control so the one thing there are a few things that you can do so if you're really having that sleep anxiety in my opinion that's kind of what i call it i'm a huge fan of meditation but not doing it necessarily you can do it before bed but it's not about doing it before bed it's about doing it during the day so starting with a minute, five minutes, I don't care, whatever you can do and any kind of meditation, it can be an app, it can be just sitting and listening to your breath. I look outside and observe and describe what I see for a minute every morning. The more you get, the better, or the more you do meditation during the day, the stronger you essentially get. You're building your mental muscle to meditate and you get better at over time, noticing when your brain is doing bum, 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 and it's like that puppy dog brain that's just super active or anxious you get better at recognizing it, letting it go and getting back on the meditation that you're doing. And the more you practice it during the day when you're not anxious about whether I'm gonna sleep or not, the easier it gets to do it at night and to recognize when your thoughts are going that way and let them go. You have to be strong enough to do that. And if you only practice it at night, you're not gonna get strong enough. You're gonna get stronger by doing it during the day. Terrific, thank you. Um, I have this question that I, I read in preparing for our call and, that, and it, it may seem redundant. So if so, just let me know and we'll, we'll skip to the next. But um, you've done research on neuropsychological effects yeah. of insomnia in older adults. Can you let us know a bit about that or have you really gone through that? I mean, that was like my older days when I was in graduate school and stuff, but a okay. lot of I did. It was really about looking and it's still it's also applicable for younger adults, too. But it's you know, we find when people sleep less than six or more than nine hours, remember that six to nine, yes. it tends to lead to more issues with cognitive functioning, your reaction time, your memory, that sort of stuff. But it's interesting because people always focus on the lower end, right? If yeah. I get four hours or five hours, it, we also see it on the upper end, too. So if you get too much sleep, it cannot always be good either. Terrific. And does that include napping? So if somebody who's getting seven hours of sleep and then naps two hours a day. It, well, that's not, I mean, there, it, it could, but it, it varies based on the person. Because some people, if they're fine sleepers at night, no problem. But if they find their sleep's unrestorative, anything like that, then we, then we got to, or non-restorative, then we got to address it a little bit different. Yeah, it varies. Okay. Uh, 
you talked about meditation. I wanted to ask you about mindfulness and mm -hmm. do the two um, sort of cross each other or two, two separate things? For me, they cross. I The type of meditation I always was trained to doing, there's a gazillion types of meditation out there. I like to do mindful med mindfulness for meditation. So it's really just picking some activity or just your breath, whatever, or looking outside and picking one thing to focus on or something to listen to. And then when your mind wanders, just getting back on track. It's not really about having a mantra or anything like that. It's just about training your brain to be not necessarily focused completely in the moment, but to refocus. I think that's the misnomer that a lot of ha people have is that you can, you're supposed to just be focused the entire time. That's not it. It's about noticing when you're getting a busy brain and letting it go and going back on track to the back. And that is the muscle that you kind of illustrated that you want to be exercising over time exactly. during the day. Exactly. Great. Because the night gets closer for a lot of people with insomnia, they start to dread the night. I, they always ah. say dread the night as it gets closer. So when you start to notice those little pesky thoughts coming in, if you're stronger at letting it go, it gets easier to let it go. So you don't try to control whether or not you're going to sleep. Yes. So that's so helpful. Um, okay. So now to focus a bit more on how you can help yourself. Meditation sounds like a terrific tool and something we should all be um, yeah. trying to practice one minute at a time. What else can we do to help ourselves turn the situation around tonight even? Yeah. So there's a few things. So one is just being consistent. So if you try to be a little bit more consistent with your bedtime and wake time, that can help okay. some, right? So okay. some people some days go to bed at nine, they kind of react to whenever they're sleepy and go to bed at varying times. And oh. then the other thing is if you now have a consistent-ish bedtime, you can start to count backwards. So I'm a big fan of sleep. I always say this all the time. Sleep is not an on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch. So mm -hmm. if you're someone who gets in bed and you crash, you're turning off the light. It doesn't always work that well. So your brain has to be dimmed down. So starting at whatever your bedtime is, count back and try to stay off of screens and the apps, mm -hmm. all that sort of stuff. I get the place of them, but it just gets too tempting to look at everything else. And then the blue light from them for some people can keep them up. So I'm a fan of like really try to go old school, do some meditation, reading, something without a screen for a good, ideally an hour before bed, but that's hard for myself included, a lot of people. So if you can't do that, start with tonight. Say, I'm going to give myself five minutes between turning off my phone and then just maybe doing a little deep breathing before I get in bed. Five minutes. And then once you get better at that, then move it to 10 minutes. Um, and then the other big thing is like either journaling or worry time, anything you can do and hour or more before bed to get mm -hmm. stuff out of your mind. So if you want to journal, great. If you want to spend 20 minutes, but not longer than that, writing down the things you're worried about and what's the next step you can do to actually solve it. Or if there's nothing you can do, crossing it out and saying, I need to let it go. Getting it out of your brain is really key because whatever you go to sleep with is going to be on your brain at three in the morning when you wake yes. up. Active. So try to get it out of your brain a little bit. Oh, these are terrific tools. I was thinking also about things like um, alcohol or stimulants or um, like the temperature. We hear about that a lot. Is that really yes. a thing? All things. So alcohol, we always say limit within three hours of bed, limit caffeine within about eight hours of bed, although it varies for some people metabolize it faster than others. But uh, caffeine, the big thing with caffeine is a lot of people think that um, it just keeps you up. It doesn't. It can also cause lighter sleep or awakening. Same thing with alcohol. So alcohol might put you to sleep, but it might cause the quality of your sleep to be yes. worse. 
exercise. We try to limit it within three hours of bed, limit heavy meals, limit liquids within three hours of bed. Um, I talked about the screens, temperature, you want to keep your bedroom quiet. I always say a pretty cave. So quiet, dark, cool, and comfortable. So that's not not exactly comfortable, but you think about it, sleep. We slept pretty well when we were in caves. We didn't have all these like alarm clocks and fancy gadgets. You want to keep it. That's how our bodies are meant to sleep. Quiet, dark, cool temperatures. So you want to keep it cool throughout the night. Um, And those are all things that can help. But if that's not enough, sleep hygiene is great for the person who has the occasional horse night here. That's when we try. That's when we try to do to to have you see a specialist or do more intensive stuff because sleep hygiene is a great place to start, but it's not always great for the more chronic insomnia patient. Sorry, what was I going to ask you? The the light issue as well. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I was thinking of a circadian rhythm. Does that have to do with light? And is that something that shifts in perimenopause? Well, not necessarily. Or do we really dictate how successful we're, you know, we're expecting? Everyone has a circadian, all a circadian rhythm is, it's just your body's circa means about dn a day that's it so it's your body's clock natural clock that lasts about a day so it's when do you tend to go get sleepy when do you tend to wake up when do you like me have a natural dip in the afternoon early afternoon those are all normal things now some people we hear about like those morning larks or night owls some people just i tend to be more of a morning lark right so i tend to want to go to bed closer to nine and wake up at five my Mm. husband is on the opposite end that's right built in and that's yeah. okay it doesn't cause like some people will say well the ideal time to go to bed is 11 p.m no it, it's whatever works for you in your life mm-hmm. that fits and you're not sleep deprived that's it now it can as we get older it can shift a little bit earlier i should say so sometimes older adults go to bed a little bit earlier and wake up earlier um and that's totally fine as long as it's not causing a problem for you if you're waking up at three in the morning every day because you're going to bed at seven or eight at night that's something to definitely talk to your doctor about. And there are things that we can do. Light is a very big factor in setting your rhythm. That's why I was talking about when in the morning, get up and get light because it sets that wake time and it helps to set the bedtime too. So there are definitely treatments that you can do to help change your body clock, but only if it's really an issue for you. Okay, terrific. Thank you. Um, you, you did mention naps already, so I won't make you go on unless there was anything else you had to say, but essentially, you know, don't nap. Um, more than 20 minutes a, a day, if you even have to, uh, but certainly that, go ahead. If you have insomnia, naps are not ideal. Although sometimes I do use them with older patients or I'll use them with some patients, it's fine. But a power nap, 20 minutes is great. If it doesn't impact your sleep at night and you can do it, more power to you, go ahead. Okay. Um, you mentioned also a bit food. Can you expand a bit more on nutrition and food and if that factors in um, it sounds like, you know, sugars and high processed foods and things like that may not be in your best interest anyway. But. You want to limit big, heavy meals within three hours of bed. And also know, like, I, I tend to um, have certain foods that kind of cause me to have more, more GERD at night. So okay. I, like for me, I know that wine, red wine, yeah. especially, and chocolate and peanut butter are like the three things that are going to make me have the worst GERD ever. And then I'm going to wake up an hour later and just in pain. So yeah. those are things that you want to kind of know what your triggers are physically. 
but then also knowing like a big heavy meal is just not going to sit well in your belly and it makes it harder mm -hmm. to sleep but that doesn't mean don't eat anything so mm -hmm. an hour before bed i usually have people if they really want to eat or they wake up in the middle of the night because they're hungry a little snack of like a little bit of a carb and a little protein so a whole wheat cracker with a little cheese or a half a banana with some peanut butter i don't do the peanut butter but like mm -hmm. something like that is helpful for some people okay. i do get asked all the time about like they're they're you'll see things that say like oh you have to eat salmon every day and that'll cure your insomnia if there was a food that cured insomnia everyone would be eating it that's the reality. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. thank you um you touched on i mean this has been our entire conversation but just to sort of give you another moment to highlight anything else um what might you recommend to somebody who just doesn't have access to cbt um your book i know is a terrific place to start um and what else can we think about the cbt for insomnia it's different than like cbt people who might be in cbt for anxiety or depression it's a little different so it's really changing sleep hygiene is the piece but it's not the whole thing so a lot of people will say, well, I don't need to do CBT for insomnia. I've done the sleep hygiene. That doesn't work. I always say, good luck getting the other stuff to work if you've had a two liter bottle of Coke before bed, like you're already hopped up by caffeine. So that's sleep hygiene, but it's also changing bedtimes, changing wake times, sometimes spending a little less time in bed. We're working on ways to quiet the brain down before bed. So that's, it's a treatment package approach. That's where my book comes in. And then I talk about things that are more specific to women. So like, when should you see your gynecologist talk about other hormonal treatments or maybe rule out, is it apnea? Is there restless leg syndrome? That happens a lot in women. I know I get that. That makes it hard to fall asleep. So those are all things you can do. But book is a great one. There are some really wonderful apps out there. So um, like the CBTI coach, but the VA is a wonderful app. Some of my colleagues have written. Um, and then then if that's not enough, then you might want to talk, talk to a, a sleep medicine specialist, or you can go, like I said, to the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, which has a great list of people who do CBT for insomnia. Terrific. We'll get those resources from you because I know we'll want to attach them to, to, the, to the call recording. Um, when might a woman decide she better go see her gynecologist? I think it's really, it depends on the, the severity, right? So if you've tried some other stuff and nothing's working, then maybe just, or if you start to notice it starting to happen, it's really becoming a problem for you. Talk to your guy, what's the harm in having a discussion about it? And then mm -hmm. if you really are like on the fence about wanting to do any medication or any other interventions, that's why CBT is a great place to start because it doesn't, yeah. it works for a lot of people. And if that's not enough, then definitely have a conversation with your gynecologist. Awesome, thank you. Um, I once read, and I couldn't recall when, but I know I've gotten this information that when you get up in the middle of the night, you should get up. So this is the, like a, a thing I hear a lot, right? Women talking about, I just, you know, I try and get back to sleep. I just try and lay there. I try and lay there. I try, and it's like their anxiety is just increasing. Yep. Should you get up and out of bed or should you really try? And, yeah, you should. We always say the two things, the bed's only for sleep and sex. That's it. Okay. So what that means is that when people start to spend more and more time in bed trying to force sleep to happen or just laying there like, oh, I'll fall asleep at some point. What happens is that the bed now becomes associated with wakefulness. Or if you're someone who spends a lot of time in bed during the day watching TV or eating or any of that sort of stuff, the bed is not just about sleep anymore. It's about wakeful activities. So a lot of people will say like, oh, I fall asleep on the couch, no problem. But then I get up and I get in my bed and I can't sleep anymore. Well, yeah. it's 
It's not that the bed is a place to watch TV or be on your phone. So the rule of thumb is typically if you can't sleep, it's not hop right out of bed. That's not no. good either. Yeah. No chance. So 20, 30 minutes, but I don't like clock watching. So I, I'd rather like once you start getting annoyed or you notice your brain's like really active or you're like, I haven't slept yet. I got to once that's that's about 20 minutes. Get out of bed, go do something to pass the time. Don't sit there and like people will hear this rule sometimes and they take it so seriously or literally uh, not in the dark <coughs> Excuse me, and stare and then just like hope that you get sleepy. No, do something in dim light without screens to pass the time. And then if you get okay. sleepy again, you're back in bed. That's it. Don't sit outside and try to force sleep to happen. And it's yeah. not getting out of bed is going to make you sleepy. It's just so that you're not using the bed as a place to try and force sleep or have anxiety. It's just a place change. That's it. Great. Thank you. Um, okay. Medications, supplements, adaptogens, mm -hmm. um, over-the-counter help. I know melatonin is really popular. Um, you talked about nutrition. You talked about exercise. What, what, what say you to those of us who are feeling desperate and like, it's time for something? Yeah. So I, there's no, like, there, like I said, there's no one size fits all approach. Now, when it comes to, so that's why we try most of the time, if we can do CBT for insomnia first, if it's insomnia, and like I said, there's no other identifiable, like obvious thing. If you fix that, then your sleep will be fine. So we try to do CBT first because it's just, it works for a lot of people and then you don't go down the route of other stuff. Right. Now, when we think about medications, a lot of people would much rather use the supplements, all that sort of stuff that you can get. But the reality is like melatonin, mixed data on whether it helps. Yes. I mean, heard that I, recently. Yeah. And in my practice, I mean, remember, I see like severe insomnia patients all the time. So rare that in, that melatonin is the thing that cures their sleep, right? Wow. So melatonin, it works for some people. If you're needing to take more than three milligrams, you're taking too much. Like I have patients whose physicians say, oh, just try 10, try 15 if it's not. No, there's nothing to back that up. It can have side effects of vivid dreaming, make you feel more um, sleepy the next day, but it can help some women, not as many as people think. Now there's other meds out there, right? So there's like um, valerian, for example, there's a few others that have even less data behind them than melatonin. So okay. just natural doesn't mean that it's like a cure-all and then they yeah. also still have side effects and they're not regulated by the fda in the us so yeah. you don't know fully what you're getting now <clears throat> excuse me that being said medications also have side effects everything has side effects but the medications have been studied a little bit more or a lot more than say the um over-the-counter sleep aids so it's a little bit of a risk benefit discussion to have with your doctor um, if you want to start with melatonin, your doctor's okay with it, you can start there, but then sometimes medications are necessary, but you know, to lump all meds in one class too, is not always yeah. Yeah. so many different types that it's a yeah. position. I also, I start thinking a lot about contraindications. So especially, you know, if maybe you're already taking, I, I don't know what, I, I don't know what the contraindications would be, but it just seems really risky. And I'm so glad you brought up sort of clarified melatonin for us because it is like, it's everywhere. I was in the market yesterday and I noticed how many brands were selling it. Yeah. And it's, I have no issue with it. I just think people put it on this pedestal and yeah. then they their society, it's more is better. No. Yeah. And I, use, I actually do use melatonin a lot with some patients who have like, we were talking that circadian issue. Yep. 
patients who go to bed really late and wake up late and I use tiny, tiny doses to shift their body circadian rhythms. But that's a whole other, like you don't take it right before bed, we use it very differently. Now, mm. you know, contraindications, the other thing to think about is like, people will be prescribed sleep aids left and right. And like the, the pharmaceutical stuff, but if you're someone who snores, if you have sleep apnea, but it's not being treated, and now you're taking another thing that's relaxing your airway, you're now you're making sleep apnea worse. So you're trading yeah. off sleep, but at what quality and what cost during the day? Is it worth it? So it's yeah. all that we need to think about when we're treating sleep, um, insomnia especially. Wow, this is so helpful. Thank you. Um, also, and I, I meant to mention this too, but sort of dependency on pharmaceutical yeah. Um, or, or maybe even supplements and things like that. When we talk about dependency, there's, there's the physical dependency that happens, yeah. some of them, some of the meds, and then for some of them, you can stop it at any time and that's fine. But, but what happens is it's more of a psychological dependency. So some of the sleep yeah. aids are really hard to get off of because it's like your brain just says, there's no way I'm going to sleep if I don't take it. And so that's a lot of what I treat is getting people to like, they're, they're taking at some point dust of a medication after a while. Mm. And it's like, is this really doing something? Or is it your brain that's you're telling yourself that this is it's what you're attributing your, your sleep to? Yeah, so I'm really, I'm just hearing this thread throughout our conversation. That's really about exercising the tools that we already have at hand that don't cost anything, aren't ingestible and really can address whether you're perimenopausal, menopausal or not. Yes. Um, sleep issues. Dr. Shelby, have I missed anything particularly significant to this community that you think, I know I really, I, I, <laughs> I think but. it's just, like I keep saying, there's not a one size fits all approach. And when you're thinking about your sleep, you want to think about it in many different, uh, different ways. And if you're, talk to a doctor who says to you, eh, this is what happens when you get older. Don't worry about it. You know, it's fine. Yeah. Find a new doctor. Because I think okay. there are a lot of people that I deal with or I work with who just have gotten like the go around or they're told, oh, you know, I don't sleep. It's fine by their physician. Yeah. Not. And there yeah. are very effective treatments, medications, non-medication, all different things. So you really shouldn't be suffering in silence. In your practice, the women that you see, perimenopausal women that you see, it, do you find that it's really, it, it is as a result of sort of the hormonal fluctuation or is it sort of this combination that you keep addressing of sort of life stressors, it hormones? It does vary. For some women, it's very much a hormonal thing. For others, mm -hmm. it's like, you know, I have the occasional hot flash and my brain races once in a while, but it's manageable and then we can address the things that they're doing. They're getting, they're spending too much time in bed trying to force sleep to happen. Those are things. I think it's a firestorm for a lot of people, but it's figuring out where are the areas that we need to focus on is kind of the key. But there are some women that it's just very much a hormonal thing that's fueling it. And no matter what else we do, that's the thing that helps the most. And that's, like I said, it's a risk benefit discussion that shouldn't be so taboo anymore like it used to be. Absolutely. It really does help some people. But there are many different options out there. Um, just finally, other than, you know, for someone who, for whatever reason, can't jump ship on their doctor, what might you come armed with um, into your doctor's office if it comes to that, to sort of get the help you need from them? Are there questions you should be asking? 
Yeah, for sure. So to, I would definitely, if you are worried about your sleep, make time. Sometimes I even say to people, if it's possible to actually try and book a double appointment, some, some physicians will allow that. So if there's a way to book for extra time, because a lot mm -hmm. of times primary care or gynecology, they, they're so busy that sleep is like this tiny thing. So come talking yeah. about what your sleep problems are. Talk about what your sleep schedule is, because a lot of people will go into a doc and say, I wake up at three in the morning every day and I can't sleep. But then they don't say, well, I go to bed at 8 p.m., right? So it's, right. A, that's, it's a story, right? You're sleeping a full night. So you want to give them a bit more sense as to what your sleep patterns are like. And if that's just not enough, then maybe talking to a sleep uh, sleep doctor specifically would be helpful. But there are really great books on just perimenopause. Like I love Dr. Jen Gunter's stuff. Um, mm -hmm. That's a wonderful book. And she talks about sleep a lot in there. So if you read up on that, there are great societies out there to read your, your app, like all this sort of stuff. Just come as, with as much knowledge of the different um, treatment options that are there, my book, then you can get into a better, bigger discussion with your doc about it. Awesome. Um, can you tell us where we can find you for those of us who don't know? So um, I have a pretty active Instagram page. So if you're on Instagram, it's just sleep doc Shelby. So I do a lot of evidence-based stuff on there. Um, and I do Q and A's once in a while as well. And then I have a website, it's just DR, like Dr. DrShelbyHarris.com. And that's where you can find info about me, my private practice. I see a lot of people in New York who are um, telehealth. And those are two best ways to, to reach me. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Shelby. This has just been an incredibly informative, rich, rich time spent with you. And um, the community and myself are very grateful. Um, Thank you. Thank you. I'm, I was happy to talk sleep. So thank you. And thank you. It was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I would love it if we could return and speak again at some point, maybe, you know, later in the year, I would love to love to speak again. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Shelby. Thanks guys for coming. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to our Perimenopause What the F podcast. The perimenopause journey can be lonely and it doesn't have to be that way. Make sure to download our free Peri app to connect with perimenopause warriors in the same stage of life. See you next time, Peri sisters.